0: Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content such as pictures of the characters, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content that may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. Mr. Miller entered through the dim-lit studio and sat down in his leather high back chair. He was well into his 80s and seemed so frail. Sitting on the table next to his chair was a framed picture of Mr. Miller from when he was in his early 20s. He looked nothing like he did in the photo. His nicely combed dark hair was now gone, exposing his liver-spotted scalp. His smile had long since passed away and was now replaced with a serious scowl. A younger man, who had been interviewing Mr. Miller for well over an hour, came and sat down on a stool about four feet from where Mr. Miller was sitting. Next to the younger man was a large video camera aimed at where Mr. Miller was sitting. Feel better? asked the younger man. Mr. Miller nodded his head and softly replied, I do. You gotta let out that bladder more often as you get older, that's for sure. I hear you. Alright, so where were we um uh yes you were talking about your first few days on the base and how you and the other crew all went out for drinks at the bar just right off the base are you okay to continue mr miller nodded his head and then softly replied yep whenever you're ready i'll start talking all right ready in three two one and go mr miller took in a deep breath and said the following looking at the younger man as he talked we drank all night long with everyone until it was almost midnight. That was the first time we had all been together under one roof since we arrived in England, and uh, we were just so happy and so content with that with that night. You know, it was it was nice seeing the boss. You know, relaxed and uh, calm, and uh, we just had such a great, great, great time. Little did we realize that, you know, it was the last time we all would be under one roof together. But, um, you know, anyways, after we were done, we all went back to our huts and to our surprise, there was no mission the next day. You know, we, had, we, we, we went all through all these preparations because we thought for sure that we were going to have a mission and we woke up and there wasn't one. So, you know, being full of piss and vinegar, uh, we tried to find anything to keep our minds busy. You know, I, and which is why thinking about it now, you know, I, I I still think that that day was far worse than any mission we ever flew because we just wanted to get that damn thing over with. You know, there was no sense of waiting around and talking about it and thinking about it. We just wanted to get up and just go do it. Now, were you at this point scared or were you nervous or would you just say you were just anxious? The young interviewer asked, um, I would say we were anxious, if anything. We didn't know what to expect, really, in order to be scared. There was nothing that anybody could have told us that would have prepared us for what the real thing was going to be like. And, I mean, even the army wasn't even able to really prepare us for at least our first mission. You just had to go up and you just had to do it. And that's what everybody was telling us. You know, you really couldn't... You didn't know what to expect unless you went through it. And so... You know, we just You know, we just kinda of waited around. And the thing that terrified us, I think, more than anything was the looks that the experienced crews had whenever there was talk of a mission. Even if it was a simple milk run mission, you could just tell when you looked at their eyes that they were scared and they were nervous. And I think that terrified us rookies more than anything else. Because here you had these experienced guys who who had been through some of the worst missions, they had been through big week and they are the ones looking scared. Even if they just talked about a mission, you could just see it in their eyes. It was just it was just haunting. But um and then the other thing was is that at the time we thought that they were scared and they looked nervous because of what could happen to them. You know there's always that 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 stigma that You know, war is hell. You're going to get, you have a possibility of getting killed in war. But knowing what I know now, they weren't scared because of what could happen to them. They were scared because of what they knew was going to happen to them. They just didn't know if it was going to happen to them that day or if it was going to happen to them the next day. Because, you see, something that a lot of people don't realize is being in a bomber crew that's no way to make a living the only thing you can do is to make it dying and we were so arrogant and we were so foolish that that day before our first mission we thought that life was anything else other than that reality 63 years earlier, March 5th, 1944, United States Army Air Force Station 186, Thurlow, England, 0812. The next day, the enlisted men were all recovering from their hangovers at breakfast. The breakfast that morning was more powdered eggs, bacon, and a hard breakfast roll. Sitting at the table was Tommy, Willie, Al, Skimpy, Bruce, Joe Knight, and Johnny C. I thought last night was fun, said Bruce. It was. I still can't believe the boss was kicking down drinks. I never seen him so relaxed, Tommy added. I actually can't remember ever seeing the man drink, Al pointed out. That's true. You know, he didn't drink at that bar before we flew over the Atlantic, Tommy said, eating a piece of bacon. Yeah. Yeah, he took us all out for a little drink at a bar right off the airfield the first night we were all together. That's when we got to meet Andy for the first time. Remember how we told us that he knew President Roosevelt? Recalled Al as he was about to drink his coffee. He does? Was this Andy guy there last night? Asked Prusin. No, 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 no. He wasn't there for whatever reason, but it was very clear to us all that he was lying through his teeth about knowing the president, responded Al. He lied about knowing the president? Prusin asked. Yeah, he said it because Rosie made some comment about how his dad knew the guy who played the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz. And you know, Andy being Andy, he had to be the star of the room. So he told us some bullshit story about how President Roosevelt came to town and he saved his life when he was choking on his food. And ever since then, he, you know, President Roosevelt said, anything you need, just ask and I'll get it for you. You know, it's just, it was a complete flat out lie yeah if you're gonna lie at least make it a believable lie Tommy added now which one was Rosie asked Bruce the angry Jew Tommy answered jokingly is that what you call him Bruce asked yeah I like to think that he was a happy individual until Andy came along Tommy commented getting ready to take a bite of his role yeah that's probably true Andy sure has a way of wearing down a person I don't know how the Bosch or Rosie even deal with him as Willie talked, Tommy bit into his breakfast roll, and the hard exterior of the roll crumbled and a piece cut Tommy's lip. Ah, oh, son of a bitch, Tommy called out. What? Asked Al. This roll just cut the inside of my goddamn lip. What the hell is this thing made of? Concrete and glass? Tommy cursed with his mouth full of a dense, dry, and hard piece of bread. Oh yeah, I meant to warn you. Those rolls are left over from the night before. Those things can be used to knock down Nazi fighter planes in the sky if you ever run out of bullets, Jodai commented. You didn't notice it felt like a goddamn baseball when you picked it up? Wooly asked. No. Damn, that's gonna hurt tomorrow, Tommy said after swallowing the mouthful of bread and then felt the inside of his lip. Just then, Mills and Beans were out of the table with their tray of breakfast. Finally, we were getting worried you guys were gonna miss this high quality breakfast, Wooly called out. As Mills sat next to him at the end of the table, he sarcastically remarked, Yeah. I lay awake all night wanting this pig slop. Yeah, well, don't bother with the roll; you'd be better off taking a bite out of a stone. Tommy called out, still feeling the inside of his bottom lip. Oh, that's when the bread's at its best. Leave a loaf out for a day or so, slap some margarine on it, and you got yourself two perch in a line. Beans enlightened. Beans, what the hell did you just say? Tommy asked. I understood him perfectly, remarked Johnny C. So did I, Skippy said. Skimpy, speaking of which, I gotta say, I've never seen you drink before last night, Mills said changing subjects. Well, that's because it was my first time drinking, Skimpy softly said. Everyone at the table stopped what they were doing and looked at Skimpy with looks of surprise and awe. In fact, Mills actually dropped his fork on the metal tray, making a clinging sound. What? Willie asked. Yeah, and embarrassed Skimpy replied. So before last night, you never had any alcohol? Johnny C. asked. "'No. Not even in church?' Tommy asked. "We were raised Baptist. We only had grape juice,' Skippy responded. Josh, No wonder why you wish to have your notion books,' Willie jabbed. "'That's because he's educated. You're half a brain cell away from being the same as this metal tray,' Al commented. "'Oh, you fellas gonna fight again?' Tommy asked, looking excited. "'No, I'm done fighting for this week,' said Al. "'So what else have you never done, Skippy?' asked Tommy. Yeah. What can we do to cross some things off of your road to becoming a man list? Al added. Oh, I don't know about that. Um, I don't know. I've never been to London. Skimpy answered. No shit. None of us have. Come on. What things have you never done? Bruce asked. Ever been with abroad? Asked Willie. Like alone in the room? Skimpy asked. Yes. Alone. In a room. Under the sheets. Giving her the old Skimpy's delight. Willie clarified. Skimpy nervously smiled and didn't respond. Leave him alone, Willie, Al called out. Are you serious? Never? Never even kissed a girl? Willie furthered. Skimpy shook his head sheepishly. Shit, we got a lot of work to do before this war's over, Willie added. If we ever see the end of it, commented Prusin. Well, I sure put your damper on things. Good job, Prussian, Willie added. Prusin just chuckled to himself and then took a sip of his coffee. Over at the boss's hut, Jack sat on his bed and stared at the four empty beds that once belonged to Gabriel Blue and his crew. Their empty beds looked like white tombs to Jack. Then the thought occurred to him. Whose bed was he sitting on? What 20-year-old called his mattress home? Where were they now? Sitting in some POW camp? Perhaps they were in a hospital, waiting to return to the front and join another crew. Maybe they were sent home with a Purple Heart. But even that thought was a somber one, for Jack knew the only way airmen were sent home is if they were too mangled or mentally broken to fly. These thoughts began to eat away at Jack, and he knew he had to quickly divert his mind before his stomach would turn inside out. He turned his head and looked at Andy who was the only other person in the hut with him and who was sitting on his bed reading something from a piece of paper. what you read in there? Jack asked him. Oh, just a letter from my mom. Andy responded. Did we get mail in today? Asked Jack as he stood up to face Andy. No, I just haven't read this one yet. She sends me multiple letters. Gotcha. Jack continued as he stood in front of his bed. Yeah, I, um... You know, my mom, I swear, she writes one and sends one every day. I usually get a packet of letters on mail day. I swear half of them are just from my mom. Andy stopped for a moment and just stared at his letter. Jack then asked him another question to break the silence. So how was last night? It was all right. I just felt like I was back in Bingham Hall debating with my old Yale classmates. Andy answered. That's good. Jack awkwardly responded. There was a pause for a moment before Andy spoke up and asked Jack something that shocked him. Jack, why do you, the boss, and Rosie always poke fun at me? All last night, no one made me the butt of their jokes. It was nice. I actually enjoyed myself. Jack hesitated to respond and thought carefully about what he wanted to say next. Walking over to the boss's bed and sitting on it to face Andy, Jack looked like a father giving his son a much need to talk. Andy, those guys didn't make fun of you because they're strangers. You know the boss. He doesn't treat anybody like a stranger. He's just going to tell you what's on his mind. That's why we like him. I, on the other hand, I just, I don't think you realize how you come across to people. Well, how do I come across to people, Jack? Everyone last night didn't seem to feel any sort of way towards me. Andy fired back, already sounding defensive. That's the thing. I'm sure they were. You just weren't noticing it. The other night at the Red Lion, you slammed your chair into the table behind us. Didn't even know it. You made those guys spill their drinks and everything. And what about the other day? You called Rosie a kike and didn't understand why he was so upset. I only said that because he called me fat, Andy commented. No, he said your jacket looked bad because it was too tight across the shoulders. And weight isn't the same thing as calling a Jew a kike, Andy. I know you know deep down inside that that's true. Jack was using all of his willpower to hold back from lashing out at Andy as he sat there looking stunned by what Jack was saying. Andy, you're you're an only child, right? Jack asked. Andy nodded his head, looking off in the distance. Any close cousins? Jack furthered. Andy still shook his head. Any childhood friends? Not really. Andy shamefully replied. Okay, well, then you didn't have the luxury of having brothers, cousins, or friends to teach you all this. You lost your dad at a young age, correct? Jack asked. Andy, with a tear welling up in his eye, nodded his head. Okay, well, now you have brothers who are here to teach you how to behave and how to bust balls and have a good time. It's a shame it has to happen here, but it is what it is. Jack finished. Jack finished. Andy didn't respond for a while, and Jack was getting impatient sitting there because he knew he had to make it back to the shower hut soon, so he stood up, walked over to Andy, and rested his hand on his shoulder and said to him, Look, I promise. I promise to lay off of you. I'll talk to the others. Rosie may not listen because he's, you know, he's Rosie, but I know the boss at least will make an attempt but you have to put forth effort into becoming more socially aware, okay? Instead of answering, Andy just sat there breathing in deeply. Jack waited about 30 seconds before he patted Andy on his shoulder and left him alone in the hut. A few hours later, the enlisted men were on their way back from the mess hall and were headed towards their hut in order to change out of their fatigues and leather jackets and into a more formal military attire the plan was that after the men had changed they would all head to the afternoon troop truck which would take the passengers to nearby haverhill where they would find a place to drink and fraternize with local girls this was something that rob johnny c jodai Schmidt, and pruzen were accustomed of doing and wanted to share this experience with the young rookies the men walked along the dirt road which was lined with dozens and dozens of quonset hunts more than half of them were empty. The huts all belonged to the various enlisted men belonging to the 300th, and their hut was located at the end of the road. As they walked, another group of men were walking the opposite direction. Johnny C. stopped to talk to some of the men and instructed the rest of the group to continue without him so he could catch up with his friends. However, after a few minutes, Johnny C. ran back to the group and was shouting to them, Hold up! Hold up! That was when the men all turned around to see what Johnny C. was yelling about. Having stopped running, Johnny C. announced to them, "'The base is on lockdown tonight!' "'What? How do you know?' asked Prusin. "'I just heard from Booer back there. He said they tried to leave and go into town, but they told them that no one's permitted to leave,' Johnny C. replied. "'Shit, that means that something big's gonna happen tomorrow for sure,' Jody called out. "'Something big?' asked Tommy. "'Yeah, a big mission.' They'd never have done anything like this, Jodad explained. Well, what are we going to do about tonight, asked Beans. We could always go to the club tonight, Schmitty suggested. Yeah, we could. We could always drink it up there. Although it might be a tight squeeze in there tonight with all the passes being canceled and everything. I just can't believe they canceled all passes and... uh, How can they lock down the entire base? Johnny C. responded. The air suddenly became thick as the rookies began to process the sudden realization that there was a high chance that whatever mission was going to happen in the next 24 hours would not only be their first one, but also the biggest one yet, bigger than anything that these experienced crew members had ever seen before. That night, the enlisted men's club was packed. The hut was a medium-sized cramped Kwanzaa hut with a small bar that was too small to house any bar stools for the men to sit down. The only seating there was was wooden folding chairs, all grouped up in pairs of fours. A fireplace sat at the far end of the hut, and on the mantle was a 50 caliber gun with the words 530th Squadron painted in white lettering on the barrel. The walls were decorated with fragments of Nazi fighter planes, which had been collected and shot down from night fighters and bombers. There was even a section of an older B-17 nose art hanging above the bar area. The section of metal was from where the three windows on the left side of the nose were located. It was about four feet tall and eight feet long. The painting was that of the 530th Squadron logo, the dinosaur riding on top of the bomb. The men had heard that the nose art was from the first B-17 that had arrived in Thurlow and had crash-landed coming back from a mission. Subsequently, the plane became known as Hangar Queen, a term meaning a plane that is kept for stripping parts off to repair other, more flyworthy planes. Since the nose art was that of the 530th Squadron logo, it served a final purpose by being hung in the enlisted men's 530th Squadron clubhouse. The men all walked to the sidebar, where a group of chairs around a table were not being used. There was enough for everyone, with the exception of Rob who preferred to stand than sit on the floor. After the men had all guzzled down their first round of drinks, that was when Mills asked the question he had been waiting to ask. So, where do you think we're going to be going tomorrow? The first person to respond was Joe Dite, who said lighting up a cigarette. Personally, I think it's going to be Berlin. No, I don't think so, Schmid called out. Yeah, I heard the 381st didn't even make it to Berlin because the flak was too bad, said Bruce. Well, I heard the smoke screens made it impossible to even find the city, Schmidt added. See, that's not what I heard at all. I heard that it was the weather that made them select a different target altogether. I heard that it didn't even get close to the city, Prusa called out. It's all hearsay if you ask me, Rob said softly as he took his lit cigarette out of his mouth and tapped the ashes all over the ashtray that was sitting on the table. Willie, Skimpy, Tommy, Mills, Beans, and Al all sat in silence as they watched the other crew talk amongst themselves. Right. I think it's going to be another run at Schweinfurt or Regensburg, like the one they did last year. Remember hearing about how much of a snafu that was? Schmitty asked with a huge smile on his face. I did. You know, my brother was shot down during that mission, said Rob. What? I didn't know that, Johnny C said after the others at the table got quiet. Yeah. I found out the day I joined up that they had been shot down and they were still missing. Doesn't that suck? Hopefully, though, we're in a POW camp and not worm food. Rob explained with a very somber and very depressed look in his face. Damn, Rob. Well, in that case, where do you think we're going to be going tomorrow? Asked Johnny C. Hell if I know. No, it's not going to be a milk run. I can guarantee you that, Rob answered. That's, that's true. They would have locked down the entire fucking base for a milk run, Bruce added. I guess tomorrow we'll all see, Rob said, taking a sip of his drink before he sat it down and got a fresh cigarette out to light. At the end of the night, the boss, Jack, Andy, and Rosie were walking past their hut after a night of casual drinking at the officers' club. Rosie and the boss both walked together, with Jack and Andy walking behind them. I saw you sitting with Einstein and Appleton chatting it up with them tonight, Jack pointed out, giving Andy a nudge. Yeah, we had a fun time. I like those guys, Andy replied. Hearing the conversation, the boss turned around from his conversation with Rosie and said, It's good that you're making friends. I like those guys too. It's a good group of men you hang out with. You sound like a pathetic mother, boss, Rosie butted in yeah you kind of do jack confirmed as the men continued to banter with each other a huge blast erupted into the air the four airmen all dove to the ground thinking it was a bomb night bombing yelled out jack no we wouldn't hurt engines the boss yelled out that was when the four men looked up and saw a billow of what looked like smoke and fire coming from their section of the airfield the men all got up and quickly ran to where their hut was located As they arrived at their hut, that's when they realized that the smoke was coming from the hut that was next to theirs. Standing outside the hut were five men, all laughing amongst themselves. The piece of roof that sat around the front stovepipe was blown open. Smoke and ash were spilling out from where the stovepipe once sat. God damn it, Sheila, yelled out one of the men. It was clear from their reactions, and the way the men were talking amongst themselves, that they were all very intoxicated. The boss and the others walked towards their hut, watching in amazement at the absurdity of what was happening in the hut next door. About 40 minutes later, the men were all getting ready to say their final words before turning off their lamps and attempted to fall asleep when the door of their hut flew open. The sudden sound startled Jack and Andy. Jack even sat up in his bed and looked at the bodies of four airmen walking in. It was a surprise that Jack even recognized them. It was the four men from the hut next door that had just blown up. The four men had entered the hut with large green military bags flung over their shoulders. Two of the men could barely walk they were so intoxicated. As they walked in, they saw the four empty beds in the back of the hut and made their way over to them. The man who was leading the charge looked around the room as he walked and yelled out, "'Sorry to interrupt your slumber!' Yeah, apparently shoving too much coal and wood in a furnace causes it to explode. Who knew? Is everyone all right? The boss asked. Yeah, Sheila's ears are going to be ringing for a while, said one of the four men as he flung his bag on an empty bed, which was next to Rosie's bed. He had short black hair, a scruffy face, and a muscular build. After he sat his bag down, he turned around and said, I'm Joe, by the way. The boss then proceeded to introduce himself, Jack, Annie and Rosie. That was when Joe introduced the other three men. The man who claimed the bed behind Joe's, which lay along the back wall of the hut, was introduced as Thomas Sheila. Sheila was average height, had a young looking face, a slight cleft chin, short brown hair and was a bit husky. He didn't say anything, except for a simple wave in the direction of the boss and the others. The man who sat on the bed next to the boss was a red-haired lieutenant whose leather jacket had the words Hailing Mary painted on the back with five yellow bombs painted along the top of the jacket. The painting was that of a red-haired woman wearing a tight, skimpy, khaki-collared military outfit. The woman was sitting side-saddle on top of the bomb. The man was introduced as Bill O'Brien. He was the youngest-looking person of the four men, And based on how he talked earlier, he sounded like he was from New England. After he was introduced, he saluted the four men and then proceeded to lay on his bed. The final individual who was introduced, who claimed the bed across from Sheila's, was a burly man with dark olive skin, a long face, thick eyebrows, brown eyes, and a rough complexion. He looked to be the oldest member of the crew. Joe introduced them as Coca, and as he did... Koka threw himself on his bed and after he did so gargled it's nice to meet you cocksuckers." wait coca why do we know that name the boss asked yeah he's the guy who shot down those two planes and got a medal for it and he yelled out jesus christ kid if you're gonna talk like that you gotta wait until i ain't around you i can't handle lisps Koka shouted out from his bed after joe let out a laugh he said you're gonna have to excuse him He's had a little too much to drink. He becomes a little too honest when he's drunk. Yeah, you're going to hear more fucking honesty if you bastards keep talking like that and don't let me sleep, Koke yelled. Yeah, they're only going to have a few hours before they come looking for us, Sheila said, sticking his fingers in his ear and wiggling it around. Why are they going to be looking for you? Jack asked. We got a mission tomorrow. Didn't you hear that the base was on lockdown tonight? Joe asked. So it is true, Rosie asked yep it's gotta be a big one for sure you guys haven't flown a mission yet i'm guessing joe asked that's right the boss confirmed well you will after tomorrow or the next day or whenever they're gonna have it if it's so big they have to lock down the entire base that means they're gonna be setting up a maximum effort which means you guys are gonna be the ones sent up so get some sleep you'll need it joe finished yeah so shut it Coca yelled out before he rolled over and faced the wall to his left and got under his covers. I'm getting there, Joe called out as he finished unpacking his bag and hung up his leather jacket and the rest of his clothes. The men all settled in and proceeded to turn off all the lights in the hut and tried their best to get some sleep. However, two hours later... The dark hut was roaring with the sound of a gargling, snoring sound coming from Coca's bed. The sound seemed to be bouncing off the back wall and vibrated throughout the metal hut. Jack, who hadn't slept yet, grew tired of the awful noise, so he slowly and quietly got up out of his bed, dug in his jacket pocket and grabbed a pack of cigarettes and his lighter and slipped on his shoes and slowly walked out of the front door and opened it to the outside. Once he quietly arrived outside, he lit up a cigarette and stood just to the left of the front door and stared at the sky and immediately began praying. After a few minutes, Jack saw the door of the hut open and a figure walked out and joined him outside. Due to the darkness, Jack couldn't see who it was. As the figure stood next to Jack, a voice softly uttered, You got a smoke? Jack opened a pack of cigarettes and took one out and handed it to the man and then took out his lighter and struck the wheel and once he did, he held the flame up to the man's face to light his cigarette. That was when he realized it was the red-haired man, Bill O'Brien. Thanks, he said. Jack softly uttered back, sure thing, and put his cigarettes back in his pocket along with his lighter. The two men stood in silence for a moment before Bill asked him, couldn't sleep? How about that snoring? How do you sleep with that? Jack asked. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be out here if I figured that out, Bill responded. He snores like that all the time? Only when he drinks, so yeah, I'd say every fucking night. You a big drinker? Well, you learn pretty quickly that a long night of drinking is about the only way you can get some fucking sleep around here. Is that so? Unfortunately. You'll learn here pretty quickly that the only thing the army ever taught you was how to fly planes, shoot Germans, and become an alcoholic. Silence fell upon the two men again, but was broken when Jack sheepishly asked, So what's it like up there? Honestly. I'm not sure if there's really any way to describe it. The first few hours are beautiful. The earth from 25 angels high is one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see. But it quickly becomes a fucking nightmare so where do you think we're going christ if i know you know i could tell you this i've flown five missions and not one of them was so fucking big that they had to lock down the entire base the night before it's gonna be one hell of a first mission for you either way lucky me yeah lucky you you're a pilot i'm guessing co-pilot yeah me too you know we have the easiest job i swear just keep doing oxygen checks. Make sure you give your buddy in the pilot seat a few minutes to rest and by taking the controls as much as you can from him. You'll be set. You'll have a front row seat to the biggest fucking shit show you'll ever see. And to think that the army pays you to watch it. Yeah, I always wondered why the pay was so much better than my other army buddies. Well, tomorrow, or whenever it is, you'll know why. But hey, no need to keep dwelling on it. Pretty soon, you'll get a flashlight shoved in your face, And before you know it, you'll be on the tarmac waiting for that green flare to go off. Bill threw the remainder of his cigarette on the ground. And before stepping on it, patted Jack on the shoulder and said to him, Try to get some sleep. Just put the pillow over your face. It helps some. As for me, I'm going back into the belly of the beast. Jack smiled and thanked Bill and went back to looking at the sky and talked to God some more. For Jack... It seemed like an eternity later the door of their hut opened up but this time it wasn't from the eight men inside the hut jack who had a pillow over his face lifted it up and caught the glimpse of a man walking in with a flashlight in his hand the man took a hard left turn and headed right towards jack's bed once he arrived at jack's bed he shined the light in jack's face and asked him lieutenant bacchus jack shook his head and pointed to the boss's bed the man then turned around to look at where the boss was laying and shine the light over in his direction then after walking over to the boss's bed he put the flashlight inches away from the boss's face and asked him lieutenant bacchus the boss in a disoriented manner responded yeah congratulations lieutenant you're scheduled to fly today the boss then sat up in his bed and quickly rolled over to turn his lamp on "'which then woke up the others in the hut. "'The man then said in a loud voice, "'Lieutenant Miller, Morland, and Rosenthal, "'you're all scheduled to fly today. "'Congratulations.' "'What about us, Saj?' asked Bill after sitting up in his bed. "'Who we got back here?' "'The man asked, shining a light over to where Bill was. "O'Brien, oh, Brolin's crew.' "'Oh, I was looking for you fellas,' the man then said "'as he shined his flashlight over his wooden clipboard "'he was holding in his hand. "'Yes.' Lieutenant Broland, O'Brien, Sheila, and Salas, you boys are all scheduled to fly today. Breakfast at 0445, briefing at 0530, engine start at 0630. Good luck today, gentlemen. The man then proceeded to walk towards the front door, and as he did, Jack wanted to ask him where they were going, but remembered what he had told Captain Blue a few days earlier. That was when the baffling reality of what was just happening finally settled in. Today he wasn't flying another practice mission. He wasn't dreaming of this moment. It was all real. The looks on the boss's face, Andy's face, and Rosie's face all resembled the same feeling that he was experiencing. They all realized that it was finally happening. They were going to fly their first, and possibly, last mission. The room was stunned in silence before the echoing sound of the sergeant flinging open the door was heard followed by the sounds of the wooden screen door slamming shut behind them, like a lid of a wooden coffin being closed before being nailed shut. Twenty minutes later, the mess hall was full. Not a single seat was available. Nearly every man was pressed up against the man he was sitting next to in order to maximize seating capacity. Jack, called out Andy. Jack opened up his eyes and looked at Andy who was sitting across from him. All the officers were wearing their long thermal underwear underneath their drab brown khaki pants, drab brown collared shirt, and olive tie. On top of that, they wore their A4 drab brown fatigues and their thick leather flying boots. Over their multi-layered outfit, the men wore their leather A2 jackets with their planes names and nose art painting on the back most of the men including jack had their hair combed and styled others like andy didn't bother combing his hair jack's eyes were bloodshot red from the long night he endured his stomach felt like something twisting it and pulling on it which was mainly due to the fact that he was anxious and had been anxious for several hours the breakfast that was before him was above exception placed on his metal compartmentalized tray were a hearty serving of fresh scrambled eggs, two strips of thick bacon, a half a grapefruit, a generous serving of home fries, which Jack had covered with salt. Sitting off to the side of the tray was a full cup of black coffee, which was still piping hot. As Jack looked at the men sitting around him, most of them had eaten their food. Even Rosie had traded his bacon to get more eggs from Andy and had consumed all of them. The boss, who was sitting next to Jack, was the only one still eating you gonna eat any of that andy asked jack jack gave andy a hard stare for a moment before he lifted up his right arm grabbed his fork and forced himself to eat the breakfast in order to look like he was all right damn i really wanted more of those potato cube things andy said they were good i can't believe how good this breakfast was this has to be the best meal we've had since we got here the boss commented That's because they know we're going to be needing full bellies up there, Rosie said. Say, have you guys spotted Mickey or the others? The boss called out. The table the men were sitting at was in the back of the mess hall, and so the boss had been keeping a constant lookout for Mickey and his crew. No, I haven't seen them, said Jack with a mouthful. The boss looked over at Jack and said to him, that's because you've been daydreaming. I'm not daydreaming, defended Jack. Okay, well, you're sleeping with your eyes open. The boss said. Boy, wouldn't that be a swell thing to be able to do, Andy stated. That would be. Say, did any of you guys get any sleep last night? The boss asked. All three men shook their heads. Okay, so the loud snoring didn't just keep me up then, right? The boss asked. No, I kept falling asleep, but I would wake up every few minutes later. It was horrible, Andy said. Yeah, I didn't sleep at all either, Jack added. I know you didn't. I heard you leave the hot last night for a smoke. Who was it that joined you? The boss asked. Joe's co-pilot, Bill, I think his name was. I don't, I'm not exactly sure on his name, but I just know he's the redhead. Jack replied. How was he? He didn't talk much before he went to bed. The boss inquired. He seemed fine. Seemed nice. Jack responded. There was a moment of pause before the boss quickly changed subjects. Well, I'll be curious to see what today's mission will be. I'm curious to see who we're going to be flying with, Andy said. Me too. Do you really think we're all going to be split up? The boss asked. I think so. Sounds like that's kind of what they do, Jack replied. Well, either way, I personally just want to get the damn thing over with, Ruzzi declared. The other three men agreed, and then after a minute of silence, as Jack finished up his breakfast, that was when the boss said, After you're done, Jack... I say we head over to the boys' mess hall and try to find them and see if they were selected to fly today's mission too. Jack nodded his head in agreement and tried to finish his breakfast. At the enlisted men's mess hall, Willie, Skimpy, Tommy, Mills, Beans, and Al were all sitting at the table with Rob, Johnny C, and the others from their crew. The mess hall was roaring with chatter and banter. The men were all dressed in thicker layers of clothes than the officers'. Their dress consisted of wearing long underwear, an olive drab t-shirt tucked in, green wool socks, a G1 olive brown wool pant, a G1 olive brown collared shirt, an F3 olive brown heated pant and shirt, and over that, they wore their wool-lined B3 leather pants and jacket. Over their feet, the men also wore green wool socks, an F2 heated sock, which would be plugged into their heated suit, and leather flying boots, and once the men arrived outside and were on their way to their planes, they would then put on silk gloves, leather fingered gloves, and waist gunners and tail gunners would put on thick green wool mittens. Most of the men also wore their silk scarves, which were either tucked in around their neck or behind the jacket, or they were hung around their necks like a pastoral shawl. There is no way we're going back to Schweinfurt, Bruce pointed out to the group. "'Yes, there is a way. You said that about Kelowna. We bombed it two days back-to-back,' Prusin corrected. Willie, Tommy, and the others listened intently to the conversation happening in front of them. Each man was being haunted by the fear of the unknown, but none of them dared to show it. Mills had never been so riddled with anxiety before being woken up with the harsh reality of war only being a few hours away. He couldn't help but look over at the five other men in his crew, and wondered if any of them would be sitting at the table with him for dinner later that evening. Would some return to eat another morning breakfast and others returning to lay lifeless forever in the ground? Would they all be charred remains in a crater somewhere in France? Mills remembered hearing stories about how the Germans would shoot holes in down airmen parachutes. Would that be the way he and his friends would see their last moments, jumping out of a burning plane only to have holes be blown in their parachutes? setting them free-falling down to terra firma Mills' dark thinking was interrupted when he saw two familiar faces arriving at the table Ayo! Tommy called out How are we this morning? the boss said walking up to the table and standing behind Johnny C. and his crew Good, we're just waiting to find out where we're going Beans answered I hear you Jack added as he stood next to the boss And how are things over at the office's world? Tommy asked officer's world good i guess replied the boss did rosie and andy get selected too mills asked they did you should see rosie he's got a huge smile on his face now that he has some coffee in his system jackie answered you know i think out of all of us he's the one who really wanted to get up in the air the most beans added i'd say well you boys better take care of yourselves today i'll be looking for you guys in the flight sheet let's hope some of us fly together the boss said All right, boss, you take care of yourself up there, Willie shouted. The boss gave a small smirk as he and Jack walked away, leaving the enlisted men to resume talking to one another. About 40 minutes later, the officers funneled in through the front door of the briefing hall, which was a large Quonset hut with a small stage in the front. Upon entering through the hut to the men's right hand side sat a large wooden table with pieces of paper lying on top. The pieces of paper contained the list of the names of all the men flying that mission that day with each column of names divided up by squadron. Today was a rare occurrence where all four squadrons were selected to fly instead of the usual three. When the boss saw this it only confirmed that today was going to be a high priority mission one that needed what they referred to as a maximum effort. Under his name, lay the names of the nine men he'd be leading that day. He was stunned to see the following names. Co-pilot, Lieutenant Miller. Bombardier, Lieutenant Rosendahl. Navigator, Lieutenant Moreland. Flight Engineer, Tech Sergeant Abram. Radio Operator, Tech Sergeant Knight. Ball turret gunner, Sergeant Mathis. Left-waist gunner, Sergeant Hilliard Right Waist Gunner Sergeant Miller Tail Gunner Sergeant Brew Every man belonging to the boss's crew would in fact be flying with him today. The boss turned around to face Jack and the others and told them about the news. Are you sure? asked the skeptical Andy. As the men all stood in disbelief other airmen who were all flooding in began to push the boss and the others out of the way so they could take a look at the flight roster as well the boss signaled to the men to walk towards the front of the room so they could find themselves a seat. As they walked, the boss responded, I'm dead sure. Willie, Beans, Tommy, all of them. How lucky are we? Just as the boss finished speaking, he heard calls coming from the right side of the room. It was Mickey, sitting with his crew up against the wall on the right side of the hut. The briefing hut had a darkness to it, even though it was brightly lit by dozens of dome ceiling lights just like the ones in their billets. The room felt like a hospital waiting room, empty of inner comfort and calmness, everyone sitting in dealing with the fear of the unknown. For many, this is the last room any of them would ever see. And for many, this would be the last time they ever existed outside a sarcophagus of riveted metal. The seats next to Mickey and the three men and his crew were empty, which the boss made his way over to to sit down. There were ten seats on each side of the room, and the rows of seats went from the stage to the back of the room, leaving a five-foot aisle in the middle of the room. Because of the setup, the room resembled that of a church sanctuary, with the stage acting as the altar, and a large wall-sized map which was covered by a black curtain serving as the church stained glass windows above the altar. Along the walls were names of past missions and black bombs representing how many planes flew those missions. The boss arrived at the first empty seat which was next to Mickey. Once the boss sat down, Jack, Andy, and Rosie followed suit. Mickey looked tired, his eyes glowing a bloodshot red which were illuminated by the dark circles around his eyes. The boss leaned forward to see Appleton and Einstein sitting next to him. Both of them, also looked tired and worn out the boss hesitated to say anything to the four men for they didn't look like they wanted to talk so he aimed his energy to mickey who at least was looking in his direction everyone's tired this morning you look tired the boss commented you're not mickey asked yeah i hardly slept did you hear what happened to us the boss asked heard it hitler heard it mickey joked I still don't know how it happened. Ah, they probably stuffed too much coal or wood in it. It happened to another crew when we got here. Those furnaces are dog shit. If you stuff them too full, you block the vent and the thing becomes basically a pipe bomb. I'm surprised nobody got hurt or even has hearing. Just as Mickey was explaining the situation, a voice called out from behind them. Oh, our hearing is just fine. Thanks for being concerned. The boss and the others turned around to see that it was the four officers from their billet. The one who spoke up was Thomas Sheila, the one who shoved too much coal in the furnace. Lieutenant Brolin and the three men from his crew sat just behind Jack, Andy, and Rosie, with Sheila sitting behind the boss. You better thank your guardian angels that you weren't injured or had your eardrums blown out from that thing, Mickey commented. All oh, right, right. My guardian angel saved me from a stovepipe so I can get blown out of the skies today. I'll thank them later." Sheila sarcastically muttered. Hey, that's not funny, Sheila. You don't talk like that. The gods are listening, Koka said. The gods? Asked Appleton. Yeah, you know God, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, Allah, Zeus, Hercules, Saint Doolittle, all of them. You know, all of those are different gods, right? In fact, one of them isn't even a deity, Einstein chimed in. What do you take me for? I ain't a fucking Stu-Nod. I'm just saying, you can't be too picky. We need all the gods and generals protecting us today. You better be careful. Rosie here is a Jew, and he doesn't take kindly to people making fun of his religion. Andy called out, patting Rosie on his shoulder. A Jew, you say? Well, that's good. Good for you, pal. Coca said, leaning forward to pat Rosie on his back. You get your dirty, Gentile hands off me. Rosie cocked, keeping his eyes facing forward. No, don't do me like that. Come on. I mean no offense. Where are you from? Who's asking? Rosie asked. No, nah, I don't need no fucking attitude. I'm asking you because you sound like you're from my neck of the woods. New York, Rosie responded. No shit. I was born in New Jersey, just outside New York. What section? Not Jersey, Rosie softly said. Okay, be a fucking prick then. We'll talk later after the flack and the fight to squeeze all that piss and fucking vinegar out of your system. At this comment, Andy turned his torso around, and held the back of a chair as though it were a shield to protect him and responded, That's not going to happen. We're going to squeeze it out of them. Brolin, O'Brien, Sheila, and Coca all broke out in laughter. Jesus Christ, kid. What, did your mother breastfeed you until you were 12 or something? What the hell is going on with your teeth? Brolin asked. Come on, guys, leave him alone. The boss defended as he turned around and hung his arm over the back of his wooden folding chair. I'm sorry, but damn, that was funny. Look, cut the heroic talk, kid. You guys aren't going to be dropping a bomb on Hitler's heads today. Up there at 25,000 feet, there are no such thing as heroes. Rung Sheila. At this, Andy turned his back around and faced the front of the room. And no fucking guardian angels, either. Angels don't venture up there, trust me. They know better, Berlin added. The boss stared at the four men for a moment. The only one who seemed to be irritated was O'Brien but the other three were still snickering amongst themselves. Brolin noticed that the boss was even looking at him and gave him a quick wink, which, along with his bright grin, only angered the boss more. Instead of saying anything further, he turned around and leaned forward, looking at Mickey and the others. Appleton made eye contact with the boss and in doing so, slowly closed his eyes and mouthed the words, I told you. Just when they thought their tormenting was over, Two familiar faces arrived at the two chairs next to Rosie. The man who was about to sit next to Rosie looked over at Mickey and quickly dipped his head down and back up to say hello. That was when he looked over at Andy and Rosie. Oh, son of a bitch, the man called out. Rosie looked over at the man and immediately recognized him as the officer who confronted Andy at the Red Lion Inn a few nights previous. Oh, I remember you, Andy shouted. Oh, do you? You should, Captain Harold responded. The Boston spoke out in confusion. You guys know each other? Oh, wait. Yeah, you're the guy who, yeah. I don't see the 528th on the board. Are you guys on fielding duty? Mickey asked Captain Harrison. Yeah, we're assigned to your squadron, the 530th today, Harrison said. Oh, that's swell. So you're going to cover us out there, or are you going to leave us alone for the Germans to pick us off because we hit your table a few nights ago? the boss sarcastically asked Harrison. At first, Harrison didn't seem to respond or react to the boss's comment. He just stared at him for a moment before he turned his head away from the boss and the others and whispered in his co-pilot's ear, I tell you, Matt, these goddamn rookies are getting more and more pathetic with every week. The co-pilot nodded his head in agreement. That was when Captain Harrison looked up at the front of the room and saw that to the right of the stage was a large chalkboard with dozens of B-17 shaped outlinings all aligned with the typical box formation setup was located. Each plane was named with one of three letters in front of each number. The letters consisted of H, LD, or L. H stood for the High Squadron, LD stood for the Lead Squadron, and L stood for the Low Squadron. Each squadron was assigned to either the high squadron, lead squadron or low squadron, and each bomb group that was selected to fly a mission that day would be made up of these three layers of a formation. Once up in the air, each bomb group would then be assigned to either the high, lead or low area of the larger formation called a group. Along the top of the blackboard were the words Group 3, meaning that the 300th Bombardment Group would be flying in the third group of the large formation of bombers. Most missions consisted of three or four groups, each one made up of three bombardment groups. If today was going to be a large mission, with lots of planes in the sky, being in the third group was a good thing. On large missions, there could sometimes be up to seven to ten groups. Being as close to the middle as possible meant that it was harder for the German fighters to attack them, but on a smaller mission, being in Group 3 could be a death sentence, since they'd be at the back of the formation. In these moments, not knowing the mission and the full size of the formation was a form of torture that no airmen would wish upon their worst enemy. Under the words Group 3 were the words LD 96th, H 300th, L 94th. This meant that the 300th would be flying in the high wing of the third group, This meant if there were multiple groups flying today, being in the high wing meant that the only thing they had to worry about were fighter attacks coming from above, since the only way the German fighters would be able to attack them was from above the formation. Now that Harrison knew the 300th would be flying in the high wing of the third group, he looked to see where his squadron, the 530th, was going to be in the bomb group's formation. Below those words were LD, 529th Squadron, H, 530th Squadron and L 531st Squadron. The 530th would be flying in the high squadron in the high wing of the third group of their formation. Looking down at the chalkboard with the B 17 outlining, Harrison could see each squadron had a total of seven spots. He saw that the high squadron would be led by the 530th Squadron commander, Major Antonio Griffith of St. Lunatic. Flying off to his right, and just below him was Hailing Mary, piloted by 1st Lieutenant Joseph Rowland, the leader of the rowdy gang that inhabited the same billet as the boss and his crew. Flying on the opposite side of Griffith and just above him in the number three spot of the formation was Hellfire from Above, which normally would be piloted by 1st Lieutenant Rowland Smith, but since he was still in the hospital, a replacement pilot named 2nd Lieutenant Albert Dover would be flying that plane alongside Mickey and the rest of his crew. Flying above and just behind Hellfire from above in the number four spot was Bomb McGee, piloted by First Lieutenant Richard Leslie, one of the most experienced pilots in the 530th with nearly 15 missions under his belt. Flying just below him and to the right in the number five spot was a name that he didn't recognize. The name Bacchus was written in the inside of the B-17 chalk outlining. Flying on the upper left side of Bomb McGee, in the number 6 spot was Paper Doll, piloted by 2nd Lieutenant Bill Roush. Finally, in the number 7 spot, which was above and in between both Bob McGee and Paper Doll, was his name, Harrison. He and the other 9 men, which made up the crew of Give Me a Yank, would be flying at the highest point of the formation. No other plane would be above him. Leaning back over to talk to his co-pilot, he began talking through the possible day's events going over any sudden things that was going through his head. As he did, that's when the boss said, Oh, it looks like we're going to be flying in the number five spot. That's when Captain Harrison realized that the unknown name, Bacchus, was the last name of the rookie pilot. He turned his head back towards the boss and asked, You're all flying together? All you rookies are flying together. Yep, it looks like it, the boss commented. You got a problem with that? Rizzy asked. That has to be a mistake, Harrison shot off. No mistake. The army doesn't make mistakes, Captain, the boss said with a smile on his face. Captain Harrison rolled his eyes and began talking to his co-pilot again. Suddenly, all chatter ceased as the door of the briefing hut opened and a voice rang out, A TEN HUT! In almost perfect unison, every airman jammed inside the briefing hall all rose to attention. Walking down the aisle, Was the tall, broad-shouldered, highly educated legend himself, Colonel Robert Poole, the commanding officer of the 300th Bombardment Group? He walked down the aisle with a slight smirk on his face. He was wearing flying clothes instead of his standard officer dress uniform, which confused most of the men in the room. Walking behind him were three other officers, and they were dressed in typical officer dress uniforms. Colonel Poole arrived at the front of the room and walked up to the steps to get onto the stage. The other officers sat in their chairs, which were just off to the right of the stage, on the ground level with the other airmen. Once Colonel Poole arrived at the top of the stage and faced the room of hundreds of airmen, he uttered the words, At ease, gentlemen. And at an instant, all the men sat back down in their chairs and prepared themselves for the moment they'd been waiting for all morning. Colonel Poole's slight grin turned into a smile as he began his monologue. Today, gentlemen, is a very special, monumental day for the 300th and the 8th Air Force. I just want to say before we look at today's target, I think you're going to like what you have to hear. And I'm proud of each and every single one of you. We've had our asses handed to us these last few weeks, but we hung in there. We did our jobs, and we're all helping to bring this thing to an end here pretty soon. I can feel it. So now that I've said all that, pull that curtain back. After his command, the black curtain opened up and both ends slid over to the wall, exposing the large map of Europe with the red strand of yarn leading from Thurlow, England, all the way over to the eastern end of Germany and back again to Thurlow. With great excitement, Colonel Poole thundered the mission destination. The Big B, gentlemen. The target for today is Berlin. Thank you for listening to the third episode of SNAFU, a historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of a bomber crew in World War II. If you'd like to learn more information about the podcast, please visit our website and our Patreon page. Both links are down in the show notes. This podcast is produced by Cancer34 Studios, a DIY project helping to raise awareness to brave young men who sacrificed their lives in the skies over Europe in World War II. I hope we do it justice. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned next week for episode 4 of *Snafu: A New World.